You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Make your way inside. Good morning. Welcome to Worship in the Round. Give yourself a... Yeah, yeah. We are, uh, we're very excited to gather this way. Uh, before we begin, I want to set the stage, so to speak, for this morning. Uh, first of all, this is a very unique service. It's unlike anything we've ever done before. If you are someone who is uh, resistant to change, have no fear. This isn't, we're not like trying to change the way we do church. This is a, uh, maybe we are, I don't know. Um, <laughs> This is just a very unique kind of one-off morning that we wanted to do something a little bit different. We're very excited to gather in this manner. As you can tell, the room is set very differently than it normally is. Uh, First of all, you'll notice we're calling it Worship in the Round. The room is not really round. Um, I think it was Brian Duncan that said it's more like Worship in the Rhombus, uh, (laughs) which I I think could have some traction maybe for a future service. Uh, We did count the chairs uh, after we got things set up. We did find that there were 360 chairs. We didn't plan it this way. So, I mean, that is like a, you know, the number of degrees in a circle. So it's a little bit, you know, worship in the round, I guess. Uh, You will also notice that all of the chairs are facing the center. And uh, both I and the worship team will be spending, actually from this point forward, the rest of the morning on the ground with you. Uh, which means that uh, visually there will be some things a little bit different this morning than what you are used to. We felt like it was important for you to understand that we are all members of this body. Uh, I'm your pastor. It's the role that I serve here. Uh, these people in this worship team that are going to lead us here in a moment are in positions of leadership, which means that we are called uh, uh, to live above reproach to a, a bit of higher standards. But uh, in the end, when you survey the cross of Christ... What you find is that when you stand before it, you stand on level ground. There is no person who is more privileged, who has uh, greater access to God, uh, who has like the inside track or like God's like after hours number. Uh, We're all on the ground as equals, as members of this body. And so we're going to be joining you on the ground. Now, with that being said, since I'm on the ground, that means that there will be times when you will not have a clear visual of me while I am talking. If I am facing, for example, you people, all of the people behind me are getting my bad side. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to just ask you that uh, as we are gathered in this format, if you would um, be in the moment, focus on what is actually important. I'm going to explain that here in a moment. Uh, Hopefully very clear audio so that you can follow along. You'll notice that um, in a moment of honesty, there is no platform in the center of the room. We were initially going to put actually one of the the camera platforms. We had it set up like that on Wednesday night. And uh, the goal was to worship on the ground. And then when I I was teaching, I would get up on that platform and uh, it would give you visibility as I'm teaching. And as I began to work through Psalm 100 this week, uh, the word of God did what it has a tendency to do, which is sort of change our plans. Uh, I began to work through it and I began to see Jesus in it which is a strange thing to say about a psalm written hundreds of years before uh, he was born, came, lived, died, and rose again. Psalm 100 talks a lot about God, uh, and it uses God's covenant name, the Lord, all capital letters, Lord. You'll notice verse 1, 
Verse 2, uh, verse 3, verse 5, all uh, call God by his covenant name, Lord. If you're in my Wednesday night class, we talk about this sometimes. The Old Testament uh, will tell you that it's using God's covenant name, Yahweh, by capitalizing that word, Lord, L-O-R-D. Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, both are fine uh, unless you are a Jehovah's Witness, and then it's definitely Jehovah. It's not... That was a joke, y'all. Come on. It's... <laughs> None of you are Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't think. (laughs) The name of God is an important aspect of who God is. God is personal. God has made himself known in a very personal way. He first uses this in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God tells Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh in Egypt, and you're going to tell him to let my people go. And and Moses is very nervous about this because he's not even sure the Israelites are going to believe that he's been sent by God to go and do this. And so he asks God, what am I going to tell the Israelites when they tell me, or when I, when I tell them I've come, who do I say sent me? Who, who is sending me to do this? And God says in Exodus 3.14, tell them, I am who I am sent you. The great I am, Yahweh, the Lord. These are all ways that we can talk about God Uh, with his covenant name. Now, if you go all the way forward to the New Testament, to John's gospel, specifically chapter 8, there's this great story within that gospel where the religious leaders come to Jesus and they begin accusing him of some really horrible things. They accuse him of being a a Samaritan, which is a a really horrible insult at that point. Samaritans are seen as like second-class citizens. They're they're half-breeds. They've they've been intermarried with the Assyrians for, for, for centuries at this point. But even worse... They call him demon-possessed. And Jesus rebukes them for this. And then he says this in verse 52. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And this makes the Jews livid. They're irate at this. They double down on the insistence that this man must be demon-possessed. No one would make this claim. Only a demon-possessed person would say this. They say, are you greater, Jesus, than our father Abraham who died? Because they understand that the Jews, Abraham was like the pinnacle. No one's greater than Abraham. Father Abraham, right? Had many sons, had many sons, had father. Okay, we're not singing yet. Hold on. We'll get there. No one's greater than Abraham. And Abraham died. And Jesus is saying, but if you do my words, you won't die. So you must be saying, Jesus, that you're greater than Abraham. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus responds in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, this is very confusing for the Jewish people. And they respond, Jesus, you're not yet 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham who's been dead for centuries at this point? This doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus hits him with this. This is verse 58. He says, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is taking upon himself God's covenant name. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah God. I am who I am. And the Jews knew this. They understood very clearly what he was saying because it says immediately they picked up stones to begin throwing at him. This was blasphemy. It is blasphemy to make yourself equal to God unless, of course, it's true. So when we read Psalm 100, understand this, we're reading it through the lens of the New Testament. When the Old Testament saints would read Psalm 100, They would read in verse 1, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all of the earth, 
They were thinking about God in terms of a God who was mostly invisible, who, who had manifested himself in, in a, a pillar of smoke or a cloud of fire or in a burning bush, but certainly not in any kind of tangible, personal way. But when we read Psalm 100, verse 1, we don't think of an invisible God. What did Jesus say in John 14, 9? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul said in Colossians 1:15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. So we can rightly say when we read this verse, make a joyful noise to Jesus, all the earth. Make a joyful noise to Christ, all the earth. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, because Christ is the Lord. He is God, and he is at the center of all things. He is at the center of all understanding and everything that we do in our day-to-day lives. Now, with that, understa- uh, with that understanding, you might be able to figure out why I was hesitant to put a platform in the center of the room. There's no way I'm going to preach a sermon called Christ the Center while standing on an elevated platform in the center of a room. So we took it out and we put a cross in the center of the room instead to signify Christ at the center of our worship, Christ at the center of what we are doing here this morning. Originally, the band, the worship team, was going to face outward to lead you as they were worshiping, but they, like all of us, must find Christ at the center of their time of worship as well. And so we began to work through that and pray through that, and, and this is the setup that we ended up with. And, and, and fortunately, with the band facing the cross, you will still be able to see and be led by them as they worship Jesus. It's going to be a hopefully powerful reminder to you visually, not only of the equality in the church, that we are all members, that none of us stand above the rest except for Christ, because he and he alone is at the center of all things. And so what I want to do this morning as we begin our time is I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to sing for the first song, a very old song, a very old song written by a man named Thomas Ken in 1647. If you have any kind of upbringing in uh, especially high church, uh, you will know this song as the doxology. And so pray with me, and then we will begin. Father, thank you for this morning. We recognize Jesus, our Lord, our eternal God, our creator, our sustainer, the author of all things, the Prince of Peace, as the center of this time. Would you, God, give us pure focus on him and him alone, on his works, on what he has done, on his heart towards his people, on his truth that pierces through all darkness. God, we commit this time to you, how we love you, how we praise you. We thank you that you've called us out of darkness and into light. We pray these things in Christ the center's name. Amen. Stand with us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Son and Holy 
you may be seated. I'm going to warn you up front that uh, we're going to be standing and sitting a lot today. So hopefully you brought stretchy pants to church. We're going to begin this morning reading out of verse 1. And I, I think it's actually very fitting that we started with the doxology because uh, the doxology is saying essentially what verse 1 is saying in many more words. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly hosts. It's saying in more words what Psalm 100 verse 1 is really saying. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. The psalmist is calling on all of creation to bow down and to worship Him. He's saying let all of creation recognize Jesus as Lord and rightly worship him. Did you know that when we engage in this act of worship, when we come and we gather here on Sunday mornings or when you are worshiping in your personal quiet time throughout the week, whatever that looks like, you are entering into a practice that all of creation is engaged in. Every aspect of it. Psalm 19.1, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He's saying that when you look up to the sky, the heavens are shouting glory to God in the highest. You're joining your voice in a chorus with the skies, with the heavens. In Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38, it says, the whole multitude of his disciples, Jesus' disciples, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this annoys the Pharisees. You know, they're, they're sitting there, you can almost picture it, right? They're, they're engaged in this hymn of worship, and the Pharisees are just sitting there in that corner with their bitter coffee and their King James-only Bible. And he says, one of them says to Jesus in verse 9, can, can, can you shut your disciples up? That's a loose translation. And Jesus says in Luke 19.40, if my disciples were silent the very stones would cry out. He's saying, if I did what you were asking me to do, if they no longer worshiped me, it wouldn't matter because creation will worship me. You see, when we worship Jesus, we're joining our voices in this chorus of creation because he's the center of all true worship that emanates from creation. Nothing takes his place. Nothing else is above him. And notice what all three passages have in common. I think this is a very important point for us as we begin this next song. Luke 19.40 says the very stones would cry out. That verb, cry out, kradzo, it's the same verb found in Matthew 14.26 when Jesus comes walking on the sea and it freaks the disciples out. It says they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. They were, there's a sense of shouting. There's a sense of volume as they cry out. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare, the skies proclaim. There's a sense of urgency. Psalm 100 verse 1, our passage this morning, make a joyful noise. Literally, this word in Hebrew, it means to shout and triumph. It can also mean to raise a battle cry, to blast the trumpet. These are commands. He's saying, worship him and do so with gusto. It ought to be celebratory. It ought to be loud. It ought to be full of expression. It ought to be full of exaltation. There's a sense of boasting in your worship, not in yourself, not in how great everything sounds or how great life is, but in Christ and Him alone. He is worthy of this. 
And let me ask you, church, what makes him worthy of our worship? It's his holiness. Jesus is holy. It reminds me of the worship scene in Revelation chapter 4 where the elders and the angels are gathered around the throne of God and the lamb is seated on the throne. It says the 24 elders are clothed in white, signifying they've been cleansed, they've been forgiven of sin. And it says they have golden crowns on their head. And it says there are four living creatures. The book of Ezekiel refers to some of these as the cherubim. Uh, The book of Isaiah refers to some of these as the seraphim. And it says that as they are worshiping, the saints bow down and they lay down their golden crowns at his feet. And the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's an epic scene. It's an epic scene that we're going to join in right now and sing along with. So I want to ask you again to stand as we sing of the holiness of Jesus. Holy, holy, holy.
Church, this is a response to his perfectness, his holiness, to bow before him. Sings with me. Bow before thee.
Amen. Amen. Christ, the center of our worship. Look at Psalm 100, verse 2. It says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Again, there is an idea of singing here in verse 2. But where verse 1 really focused more on the posture of worship, verse 2 focuses more on the posture of service. That's the imperative here, the command in the text. Serve Christ. That's what the Bible is saying. And it makes sense, really, when you think about the church, when you think about the gathering on Sunday mornings, there's a combination of gathering to worship together around song and scripture. And and there's also this idea of serving one another and serving with one another. Serving is a very foundational aspect to our Christian faith. Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Romans chapter 12, verse 11, Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal. In other words, don't be lazy in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Notice how we're to serve as well in verse 2. This is to do so with gladness. This is literally a, a word that means joy. In other words, we don't show up to church to serve and go, I'm only here because I didn't have a good excuse to say no. We don't show up to be seen either, to show everybody how good and godly we really are, which by the way, no one's buying. We show up ready to worship Christ and to serve Christ by serving his people out of gratitude. That motivation is so important. I'm not, I'm not saying you ought to be glad in the service and what you're doing. You're to be glad to whom you are doing it for. I don't love doing the dishes at home. Uh, I would be lying if I said I didn't love vacuuming. There is something kind of satisfying about it. Um, I don't love cleaning, especially at the end of the day. I love cleaning if I know it'll bless my wife. That's the idea here. Don't fall in love with the actual act of service. Fall in love with the one for whom you are serving. I love the idea that we are called to serve, but I also want to dispel any notion that you may have that God needs you to serve. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24 and 25, Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, check this out, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything in it. God does not need your service. Understand that. He can accomplish his purposes without us. He doesn't need our worship. Jesus said the rocks will cry out if we don't. He doesn't need anything from us. But he calls us to for our benefit, not his. How many of you have seen the first installment of the Indiana Jones uh, franchise, Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, just by a show of hands, we can see who's the real deal here. (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark is great. Classic, 1981, you know, Harrison Ford at his height. Um, If you're not familiar with the movie, it's a really remarkable movie. Uh, Indy is this archaeology professor, but he's also, like, by night, this, like, just legit adventurer, has a whip, gun, and, you know, he's just just awesome. And, And in the movie... 
his, uh, his like arch nemesis, Rene Baloque, he's another archaeologist. He's like always one step ahead of him in everything he does. It's really annoying. I mean, just he cannot seem to get a break, right? And uh, in the movie, he, he discovers, along with his colleagues, that the Nazis are, are on the verge of discovering where the Ark of the Covenant is. And they plan to use the Ark of the Covenant's power to unleash it upon all of their enemies, which would just be horrible. And so Indy, this sets the stage for him to go and, and try to find it. And, and of course, if you remember, he, he travels to Cairo. He discovers that his arch nemesis, Baloque, is there working with the Nazis, which just makes it even worse. And uh, he, he jumps down into this pit at one time that has this sort of puzzle thing that he has to solve. And, and none of them have been able to solve it correctly. They're digging in this like totally other part of the desert. But of course, you know, Indy is super smart and he's the hero of the movie, so he, he figures it out. And, and he discovers where it truly is. And so he goes and they begin digging, but of course, Balok is right there. He's always a step ahead and, and he traps him down in there and the Nazis end up recovering the Ark of the Covenant and Indy escapes and they take it to this mountain and they've got this, this rabbi guy that is gonna do this ritual and they open the Ark of the Covenant up and God's power is unleashed out of it and it like melts the skin of all the Nazis. It's just this, you know, transcendent moment in visual effects for, for movies. It's really terrible looking. That looks like Play-Doh. <laughs> but someone pointed something out about this movie that ever since, I've, ever since I have, have heard this, I can't like see the movie the same. Someone pointed out that, that Indiana Jones is the single most meaningless character in the movie. Like he, he plays no role. He makes no impact on the movie whatsoever. They argue that if Indiana Jones just stays home and continues to lecture, the Nazis will continue digging in the desert till they eventually find the Ark, like they did anyways. They're gonna take it to the mountain, like they did anyways. They're gonna perform the ritual, like they did anyways. And they're gonna be melted by the power of God, like they were anyways. The movie literally doesn't change at all. It just maybe takes a little bit longer. It goes like maybe the, the lateral moves are a little bit different, but like the end result is exactly the same. And this is how I believe we fit into God's narrative with regard to serving. We can do a lot of things for Jesus. We can get really tired for Jesus, serving the kingdom. And here's the thing, our involvement or our lack of involvement doesn't change a single thing with regard to God's purposes. His outcomes will come to pass. And so Psalm 100 draws us back to this reality that, that when we serve, Psalm 100 is calling us to place Christ at the center of our service, to not be focused on what we're doing as if we're the star of the show, but to focus on who we are doing it for out of love for him. And when we do that, that is a place of obedience. That is a place where God begins to transform you into the image of his son, Jesus. He begins to shape you more and more like Christ. He will tune your heart to sing songs of loudest praise. His spirit provides streams of mercy that are never ceasing. And he becomes for us the fountain of every blessing from which we drink. And so church, I'm going to ask you to stand again, and we're going to sing now, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.
Fixed upon 
Psalm 100, verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. It's interesting that the command here in verse 3 is to know. To know that the Lord is God. To know that God has created you, that you come from somewhere, and that somewhere is the Lord. And, and this, I believe, forms the foundation for what we would call a Christian worldview. The way by which we view the world around us, the lens through which we view all of life. The reality is, is that everybody has a worldview. Everyone. Christians, non-Christians, everyone has a worldview. It may not be very um, nu nuanced. It may not, you, you may not be, to be able to articulate it well, but everyone has a view of, of what they think about God, of what they think about life and death. Everyone believes something about humanity, either that humanity is, from a Christian perspective, broken and flawed, or from a more secular perspective, very proud of themselves. We all believe that there are certain rights that we possess, that there are other rights that we do not possess. Everyone has a view of what is right and what is wrong. You see, knowing God is foundational to all of this. The idea of knowing God is not simply an acknowledgement that God exists. It's a working knowledge that affects the way we view and think about everything. It means that every decision that you make Every belief that you hold, every endeavor that you enter into, underlying all of that should be the conviction that the Lord is God. He is my creator. Therefore, I am subject to him and him alone. So often, some of you want so badly for Sundays to just stay on Sunday, to not really affect your views throughout the week to not affect what you think about social issues, to not inform how you interact with the world around you, where you live, and every day, day to day. We just wanna section this Sunday experience off and put it in a box, and this is what I believe on Sundays. God, you know, praise God, I love Jesus, and this is kinda of who I am the other six days of the week, and I don't really need to think as much about the Christian stuff because God is forgiving and he's gonna forgive me anyways, and so I can just sort of live two lives. It is true that God is forgiving, but this is not how God calls us to live. Psalm 100 calls us to put Christ at the center of everything, including how we think understand everything should go. To order our thoughts and our opinions around him who made us, around him who has established right and wrong, truth and not truth, light and dark. For he is our God. He is our creator. He has a purpose for us. He has a standard for us. And when we reject these things, it isn't God who suffers. Understand that. His purposes, like we just talked about, are going to come to pass regardless. The Nazis burn up at the end. It's we who suffer. It's we who suffer when we reject knowing God in our everyday, day-to-day -day life and every decision that we make. So my invita invitation to you this morning is this, to place Christ at the center of the way you view the world. When you read the news, when you hear about current events, local, 
or otherwise, would you place Christ at the center of how you understand those things and perhaps reevaluate the world around you for the first time with him as the lens through which you are looking? To be reminded of his presence, that when you look up and you see the stars and you hear the thunder, as we did this weekend, when you consider the universe, what is the, the James Webb telescope? I kind of, I kind of made a little bit of fun of that in my Wednesday night class a couple weeks ago because it's like, how much further do we need to see into the universe before we're convinced that we are all there is? It just looks like if you were to take an iPhone and zoom in on a granite countertop, like James Webb, that's it. it, it it's what it looks like. It's, it, at some point, it's unimpressive because we know him who made it all anyways. And so when you see these things, when you hear creation, when you hear the rain and the thunder, when you see the lightning, when you see the stars and the moon and the sun, and you feel the breeze, sometimes not a breeze because we live in Texas, that ought to make you stop and remember, I am not the top of the pyramid. But God is, and he has made me. And so I ought to order my thoughts views, my beliefs, my convictions around him, for he is great, and I am not. Amen? How great is God? Let's stand together, and let's acknowledge God's greatness. Sings my soul, my soul. 
Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. You know, we're, we're into the month of November. Kind of one month of the year where everyone decides to be a little more thankful. Verse 4 reminds us that at the center of our gratitude as Christ's followers should be Christ himself. That everything that Jesus has done for you should be the fuel that burns within the engine of gratitude. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm going to read that again because I want you to capture the weight of it. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, so often people will ask us in pastoral ministry, Pastor, what, what is God's will for me? And we can answer very correctly in part that it is to give thanks in all circumstances because you find ultimate contentment and gratitude in Christ and Him alone. Pastor James talked about that two weeks ago in Philippians. Finding contentment not in things, not in materials, not in relationships, not in careers, not in skills, but in Christ. Psalm 8, 118, verse 24. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be moderately okay with it. <laughs> be glad in it, it says. Joyful in it. All throughout Scripture, there's this call to gratitude. There's a, there's a, uh, it calls us to, to carry this sort of posture of always being grateful 
in light of what God has done for us, regardless of the circumstances that we face. So here's what I want to do for a moment. I want you to consider three things, specific things that you are grateful for right now. I don't want vague things, church, family, job. I mean, those are fine things to be thankful. You should be thankful for those things. But I want you this morning in this exercise to consider specific things, three of them. I'll give you an example, one that is just very recent. Uh, coming back from, from uh, being out of town and then speaking in Tyler, and then we had church Sunday, and then we had trunk or treat on Monday, and then Jess had a, a thing with, with friends for her kind of late birthday Tuesday, and then Wednesday was class, and Thursday's rehearsal, and it's like two weeks of just non-stop. And Friday, we were summoned by family members that we love and, and want to help to uh, come and, and help them with something. And, and I told Jessica, I was like, I'm just so worn out. And she texted me about midway through Friday and she said, sweetheart, why don't you just stay home and let me do this? Let me, let me give you a night. I'll go over and, and do what's needed over there, watch a, our niece and nephew, and, and you just be alone and rest. And I told her, I said, you know, I, I think that the, the rest obviously is good and, and I, I need that. I'm not sure that one night is gonna accomplish two weeks worth of going strong, but more than anything, what I was grateful for, what meant the most was just being known and considered and cared for in a very practical way by someone that I love. That's what I mean by specific. I want you to think of three specific things. I'm gonna give you a couple of moments in prayer to just thank God for those things. And then the worship team is going to come and, and they're going to lead us to sing of approximately 10,000 more reasons for which we should be grateful. Pray for a moment and then we'll continue.
Ultimately, Psalm 100 is going to end with a reminder that God is above all things faithful. He is faithful because he decides to be faithful. Not because we earn it. Not because we are faithful in return. God is faithful. Understand this. Even when you are not faithful to him. Amen. Romans Chapter 5, verse 8, one of my favorite verses of the New Testament. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were at your worst, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that one thing, the most heinous sin that you would never tell anybody about, that you're ashamed of, that you would, that you would rather die than let go of. It was in that moment when Christ breathed his last Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. No hope, no light, only darkness, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. It was the reformers that argued that salvation is not earned. It doesn't come through indulgences. It doesn't come through spiritual disciplines. It comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is a, me a message that comes to us by scripture alone, so that when we come to faith, it is God alone who gets the glory. He's the one who secures redemption by the blood of his cross, who transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, who makes us white as snow, who offers forgiveness of sin, who declares us righteous, who makes us new creations. If that is true, church, and we believe it is, 
then the chief message to other people when we talk to them should be Christ and him alone. Nothing matters more than Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the great apostle. He's learned beyond all measure. He can systematically talk about very deep and rich theological doctrine. And yet he said, when it comes to first impressions, all you get is what you need, which is Jesus and him crucified. Understand this, that he is our salvation. He isn't the means to salvation. He isn't the bridge to blessing. He is the blessing. He isn't the means by which we get heavenly treasures. He is the heavenly treasure. The gospel is not believe Jesus so you can have a better life and you can stop drinking and doing drugs. You can stop going to those websites or you can have a nice family or you can have a nice little house and a nice little community group. God gives you those things, great, praise God, bless his name. But the gospel is not that. The gospel is believe Jesus so you get Jesus. That's it. What did Jesus say is eternal life? John 17, three, and this is eternal life. You would have a great life and that you would live long and that you would not get sick and that you would have all the things that you want. This is eternal life, that you would one day go into the pearly gates and have a wonderful time in eternity. No, he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is eternal life, to know God, to know him. He's the center of our salvation, and he is good, he is faithful, he is steadfast to his people, even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. His goodness is greater than our failures every single time. And so for the second to last time, I'm gonna ask you to stand, and we're gonna sing about the goodness of God, simply the goodness of who he is. Let's stand and sing.
center of everything, of all aspects of our life, of our worship, of our works, our worldview, our gratitude, our salvation. There is nothing without him. Nothing else matters. Amen? Amen. If it does involve Jesus, it's worthless. So here's what I want to leave you with. If those things are true, and we believe they are, that the same Christ that is at the center of all of creation is at the center of your faith and promises never to leave you or forsake you. He never takes breaks. He never goes on vacation. He doesn't put you in time out. Jesus is with you from the moment you believe the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit from that point until eternity. He says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, after giving this great commission to go and make disciples of all peoples from all over the world, baptizing them, teaching them to observe, to keep the commandments that he has commanded us. Then he says this, this is so beautiful. Verse 20, behold, look, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That word always in the Greek language, it's a really interesting one. It just means always. 
There's no conditions. He's always with you. He is Emmanuel, God with us, right? And so I want to close with a hymn that is one of my favorite hymns of all time. It's a, it's a hymn that I listen to when I find myself in, in moments of inner turmoil or sadness, confusion, anger, whatever feelings I'm feeling. It's a, it's a hymn that I think captures very beautifully this promise that Christ will be with me always. And so I'm going to invite you to sing it as we close this time together. It's called Abide With Me. I triumph.
Christ the sinner. I'm so glad that you came this morning. I hope that this was a time that was both challenging but ultimately refreshing and reminding all of us that our priority must always be Jesus before anything else. And know that wherever you are and whatever struggle you face, he abides with you. God bless you. Thank you. I do want to, as you're leaving, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't, make a couple of announcements. I want to just remind you of King's Return coming up December 11th. Uh, I want to remind you, actually maybe some of you for the first time, November 16th, which is not this coming Wednesday, but the Wednesday after, we're holding a potluck in the gym for Thanksgiving. We want all of you there. So sign up and bring something. Come and have fun with us. Ladies, I've got two things for you. So women in particular, listen up. This is important. First of all, Monday is the exchange, uh, which is tomorrow, 645. But December 5th, mark that date because it is the next women's Christmas party. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun like we did last year. So put that down on your calendar. God bless you. See you next time. Thank you.